0: If you need a Bible, raise your hands and find your way to Matthew chapter 17. Uh, the ushers are in the aisles. They'd love to give you one. Matthew chapter 17. We are looking at the transfiguration of Jesus, uh, part two. We were in there last week. We did a, a, a New Year's message titled, Unstuck, uh, how, to, how to get out of a, a rut and live a really a prosperous new year and today we're continuing on the story of the transfiguration Uh, just an amazing story and what is so amazing about the transfiguration is not that Jesus was transfigured what's amazing about the transfiguration is that Jesus didn't walk around like that every single day he was God he excuse me he is God in the flesh And uh, he is the creator, the one who spoke the universe into existence. And at the transfiguration, for a moment, the disciples got to see him in all of his glory. And uh, we began looking at the first three verses last week. And we're going to pick up right where we left off. Um, And chapter 17 would really be better off at verse 28 of chapter 16. Uh, That's where the the story really starts. So uh, let's... Let's pick it up right there. Chapter 16, verse 28. Assuredly, Jesus speaking, assuredly I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some standing here not going to die until they see Jesus in all of his glory. And the disciples to hear that would think, oh my gosh, he's going to set up his kingdom very soon. That's what they would be thinking. And uh, Jesus wants us living uh, uh, in light of his soon and coming kingdom. Chapter 17. Now, after six days, we talked about that last week. Six, the number of imperfection. What we're going to see is Jesus in all of his glory. But it's not his second coming. It's a preview of his second coming. Jesus came the first time as a humble, suffering servant. He came to take the sins of the world upon his own shoulders. God became a man to meet us where we are that we might know him and that he might redeem us to himself. And he came the first time, as I said, as a suffering servant. But he's coming the second time in all of his power, in all of his glory. Uh, and and uh, this is a preview of that. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, uh, led them up on a high mountain That's that's Mount Hermon. And he took them by themselves. The other disciples didn't come. It was just these three and Jesus. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes, they became white as light. There's Jesus in all of his glory, the Shekinah glory of God, just radiating out from him. Uh, And and again, the miracle is not uh, this transfiguration. The miracle is that he didn't look like this every day. That he veiled himself in humanity. And here they see him. His clothes they say are just like white. Why? Because the light is actually coming out from, through, from him through the clothes. Right? Just radiating out. And look, look. Verse 3. And behold Moses and Elijah appeared to them. Moses representing the law. The first five books of the Bible written by Moses, the Leviticus, uh, you know, the, the law written by Moses, the Ten Commandments, and Elijah, Elijah representing the prophets. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So they appeared to the disciples and they're talking with Jesus. And we know from the other gospels, they were talk what they were talking about. They were talking about what Jesus was going to fulfill. By going to Jerusalem to die on a cross for the sins of the people. And we talked about that last week in depth. And so now we pick up where we left off. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. I mean, wouldn't it be good to see this? I mean, oh my goodness. I'll loose paraphrase Peter's going, Oh my goodness, this is amazing. I mean, Moses, that's you, Elijah, wow, and Jesus, you look stunning, wow, this is incredible. Oh, I would love to see this moment, Moses and Elijah there talking with Jesus, Jesus and all his radiant glory, and Peter just in total awe unfortunately he goes a little sideways after this let's look what he says lord it's good for us to be here if you wish let us make three tabernacles or three churches or three altars or three places of worship that's what he's talking about one for you one for moses and one for elijah and what do you think moses and elijah are doing right now right they're like They're probably looking at Jesus like, This is your guy? (laughs) These are the top three? (laughs) This knucklehead? What the heck? Isn't it amazing how far Jesus stoops to use us? There's a Bible verse that I hold on to as a pastor. It just, it's, I wouldn't make it without this verse. It pleases God by the foolishness of man's preaching (laughs) to save those who believe. This is his will, not my will. For me to get up here and represent a holy God, what a... And it's amazing how God stoops to use us. And here his guys just looking very foolish right now... uh, Peter says let's make a church one for Jesus a church for Moses and a church for Elijah and look at verse 5 while he was still speaking behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear him wow wow Loose paraphrase, as Peter was still talking, God says, Peter, shut up. (laughs) It's not you we want to hear. Take a look at Jesus. He's my beloved son and hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Very interesting. Very interesting. Falling on their faces in great fear. We'll unpack that in just a bit. Uh, And verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. The amazing grace of Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And they were filled with awe and they see Jesus, they look up they were trembling in fear now they look up and they see Jesus and he's back in his regular body and there's no one else there and they're in awe at what they just saw and they're like where did you just take us? what was that? and oh I can imagine how moved they were let's look at some things as we dive into this Peter In all of his uh, Peterishness uh, says, hey, let us make three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, Jesus. Isn't it interesting how people often say religious things without even thinking about their words? You ever done it? Oh, we saw it this week, didn't we? With Emmanuel Cleaver. A Democratic congressman who gets up on the first day of Congress, of the new Congress, and offers this flowerly, eloquent, flattery prayer and finishes the prayer with a man and a woman. Oy vey. What the heck? I mean, you know what that is? Those are just flowery, foolish words trying to impress somebody. Peter here, he sees Moses. He sees Elijah. He's in awe. He doesn't know what to do. What does he do? Well, he opens his mouth. Here's a good rule of thumb. When you don't know what to say, don't say anything, anything, right? But he opens his mouth and he's trying to impress. Is he trying to impress Elijah? Is he trying to impress Moses? Does maybe he see himself as, hey, I'm a religious leader just like you guys. Uh, oh, that's what we saw in the White House this week with Emmanuel Cleaver. And uh, uh, just, man, what a disgrace. And may I say the prayer, I listened to the words carefully. It was nonsense. It was a nonsense prayer. It was just religious jargon. It wasn't, Lord, have mercy on us for our sin. Lord, we need your help. Lord, we present ourselves before you. Lord, we are your servants. We have gone astray. Lord, bring healing to our land. And it's in Jesus' holy name that we come and stand. There's a prayer. But it's possible to pray just a foolish prayer. Have you ever done it? Saying religious things just to sound religious? Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, I'll pray for you. Will you? Or are you just saying that to sound spiritual? And we need to be careful that we don't just blast things off. It is wise to have reverence for God, to not frivolously toss around religious jargon, Christian platitudes. How about your prayers at your meals? Are they real or are they rote? It is wise not to throw around religious jargon, but to have reverence for God. I love that the Bible doesn't hide the mistakes of its leaders, and it sure doesn't hide Peter's mistakes here. Why does the Bible not hide the mistakes of its leaders? Why? Because we all make the exact same mistakes. And we've done what Peter's doing right now. We've tried to sound spiritual before. We've tried to impress others before. We've said religious things that we really didn't mean before. And, uh, and you know, the Bible shows it's, it's men with warts and all. And I love that about the Bible because we're just the same. Let's look at some of the mistakes that Peter has made so we can learn. Not to find fault with Peter, but so that we can learn, so we can grow, so that we can walk. The Bible says that these things were written for our learning, so let's learn from it. Let's look what Peter's done. Uh, number one, he's made, made three mistakes. Number one, he's thinking that Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross. Remember back in uh, chapter 16, verse 22, we looked at it you know, a couple weeks ago. Jesus telling he's going to go to the cross. No, 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 no. far be it, Lord. I'll never let that happen. Not, no, no, no. You don't have to go to the cross. No, no, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. We looked at that in depth last week. Thinking that Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross. Number two, using religious jargon to sound wise and spiritual. And number three, putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. These are three common mistakes that are made by man today. Thinking that Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross, trying to sound spiritual, trying to sound like Emmanuel did this week. And thirdly, putting all of different prophets on the same level as Jesus. Hey, whatever you believe, it's fine, you know. Uh, No, it's not okay, as we're going to see in just a moment. And Jesus here, we see the superiority of Jesus. God says, hey, stop, stop it. It's Jesus who I'm pleased with. And we see the superiority of Jesus. Uh, To you and me, this seems obvious. But to the Jews, that Jesus would be high and way above Moses and Elijah, uh, that was radical. That was a radical teaching. Even today if a, if you're a Jew you're like no Moses is the guy. I mean he represents the law. I mean the Bible was written by Moses. I mean Moses Jesus can't be better than Moses. And Elijah? Oh no, Elijah is the most powerful prophet of all the prophets. Do you remember Elijah? Do you remember his ministry? Oh, Elijah had a big ministry. He, he went there in time when, when Israel was, was falling into sin and wickedness. And he came and he said, hey, how long will you stand between two opinions? You're worshiping Bel, Baal, Baal. You're worshiping Asherith, uh, uh the goddess of sexuality, and the god, of, the god of materialism. And all nothing's changed. By the way, we still worship those same gods, and Israel worshiping those things. And he comes along and says, "Hey, let's build two altars." And the God who answers—that's the God whose God is real. And uh, you know the story, right? I mean, and sure enough, they do all their gyrations and everything else for their false gods, and nothing happens. Elijah then calls fire down from heaven and it consumes the sacrifice. And Elijah then leads Israel back to Yahweh, back to God and says, "Uh, how long will you stand? This is Elijah. And so to the Jew, this would be huge. I mean, you got Moses and Elijah, surely they're equal with Jesus. And uh, Peter here makes three mistakes that a lot of people make. Uh, they don't think Jesus had to go to the cross. They use religious jargon and they put all various religious leaders on equal level as Jesus. And here's what God does. He interrupts Peter's nonsensical words and he says two things. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the second thing he says is, now listen to him. Study him Look at him, quit talking, quit trying to be spiritual, and listen to what he has to say. Powerful, powerful words. Notice what happens. What happens when the disciples hear this voice of God? What happens? Let me hear you out loud. What happens? Why did they fall on the ground? Why did they fall on their face? Why? Why? They're afraid. Why are they afraid? They were just in the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. They were just with Moses and Elijah. The glory of Jesus was radiating, was illuminating the whole mountainside. We looked at it last week. The scriptures tell what Jesus says. The Bible says that when Jesus comes in his glory, he's going to be brighter than the noonday sun. That's amazing. We looked at that last week. Here they are. They're in the fullness of God's glory in Jesus. And they're loving it. They're saying, this is amazing. This is good. This is awesome. Suddenly, the voice of God speaks. And they're falling on their faces. Prostrate down. Face in the dirt. Why? Why? Here's why. Because he is a holy God. He's a holy God. And when you stand before him, you will tremble at his holiness. Isaiah was a powerful prophet, was a man God used in amazing ways. He lived 700 years before Jesus came. He gave incredible prophecies. He uh, was a man who denied his flesh to walk with God. And God took him up and he saw a vision of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6. And you know what he said when he saw it? Woe is me. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. In other words, I'm a filthy sinner, and I dwell amongst a bunch of filthy sinners, and I'm in the presence of a holy God. And he was fearing and trembling. God is holy. And it's interesting that the disciples were not afraid at Jesus' was radiant in glory, but it was God's voice that speaks. And God was not pleased with Peter's foolish and sinful words. And this was obvious by how they tremble and fall prostrate before him. Uh, Something very interesting to consider, by the way. um, did, uh, Did Peter know he was sinning when he said these things? Was he intentionally sinning when he said these things? No. There are two kinds of sin... Uh, Some of our sin is intentional, and some of our sin is unintentional. There is unintentional sin. Sometimes our sin is intentional, that means it's deliberate. Sometimes it's not. Often our sin is committed in ignorance, we don't even know that we're sinning. Unintentional sin. What might an unintentional sin be? Let me hear from you. No, nobody, nobody knows any. Yes. impure thoughts. Would that be intentional or unintentional? There are sins of commission. There are also sins of omission. A sin of commission is, I know I'm not supposed to do that. That's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the, the pride of life, uh, an arrogant thought, uh, telling somebody off when you know you should just be quiet. Uh, there's sins of commission. There's also sins of omission. I haven't sinned today any sins of commission that I know of, and yet I'm not justified by this, for I am sure quite sure that I have committed many sins of omission already today. Not caring for somebody who needed to be cared for. Not ministering to somebody as I drove by. Not loving someone properly when they needed it. Not being mindful of someone else, but just thinking about my own stuff. Here's the question. Are unintentional sins sin? Do unintentional sins make us... Does God view them the same? Our our intentional sins and... This might surprise you. But even though our sins are unintentional, we are no less guilty for them before God. And you might say, that doesn't sound fair. I don't know if I believe that. I don't think God is going to judge me for unintentional sins. We think that sounds totally unfair in our western little privileged American life. Until we go to traffic court. (laughs) I didn't know the speed limit was 35 when I was driving 55. And the judge says... Oh, you didn't know? It's okay. No, he doesn't say that. What's he say? You're guilty. And here's what he says. My dad taught me this. My dad was a traffic judge in Chula Vista. Here's what my dad taught me. Ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. You might not know you're not supposed to go the wrong way on the freeway and you drive up the off-ramp. Doesn't matter if you knew it or not. It's against the law, and you're going to get punished for it. Doesn't matter if you knew the speed limit was 25 or not. You're doing 55, and that's the way it is. And that's how it is as we stand before a holy and just God. Uh, Ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. Uh, Still guilty, by the way. King David understood this really well. King David, a man after God's own heart. He understood the holiness of God and had reverence for it. And he understood about intentional sin and unintentional sin. And in Psalm 19, he writes this beautiful psalm. And in it, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Pull that off for me in just a moment. He's bragging about God's laws. Talking about how wise they are. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Moreover... By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And he's meditating on the greatness of God's commandments. And then he says this verse, you can put it up now please. Read this with me church out loud. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. What is the psalmist saying? What is David saying? This is King David. He's saying who can understand his heirs? What's he saying right there? I don't even know how off track I am. And then he says, cleanse me from all my secret faults, all the things that I'm not even aware of that I do wrong. Also, keep back your servant from, from what? Presumptuous Presumptuous sin. Great word. What is presumptuous sins? Oh, I knew I wasn't supposed to look at that. Oh, I knew I wasn't supposed to touch that. Oh, I knew I wasn't supposed to think that. Oh, I knew I wasn't supposed to act that way. I just really didn't give a rip. And I did it anyway. I didn't care about you, God. I, didn't, I thought my way was better than your way. I hate this truth. It drives me nuts. Every time I sin intentionally, I'm saying I think my way is better than God's way. And I know how foolish that is. And yet I still stumble in it. And so David understood these, uh, these secret faults. In Leviticus chapter 4, there is an entire chapter devoted to secret sins and what to do when you commit them. Uh, And so uh, we, we find it hard to believe, and yet this is the way it is. Peter didn't intentionally sin. It wasn't a presumptuous sin. But let me tell you something. It was indeed a really gross sin in God's eyes. Make three churches a church for Moses, a church for Elijah, and a church for you, Jesus? I don't think so, Peter. Let's have a church for Muhammad. Let's have a church for Joseph Smith. And however you want to worship, it's all okay. And Jesus excuse me, God speaks a thundering voice from heaven and says, Stop talking. Well, I didn't mean anything bad by it. Makes no difference it's a bad sin you are breaking the first commandment you shall have no other gods for me and now you're going to lead others down that path by putting up other ways of worship just because you want to sound spiritual right now this is a pretty big deal suddenly is it looking a little different than it looked before unintentional sin doesn't make it any less sin Moses and Elijah are not to be worshipped. And let me just say, if you are worshipping or praying to saints, you will face God's wrath. Jesus alone is the only one we are to worship. Jesus is the one alone. And it was the voice of God that made them tremble in fear in, 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 of God's holiness. Moments earlier, they were stoked, man. They were feeling really good about their righteousness, about their their activities, about their lives. I mean, yeah, uh, Jesus called us three. I mean, the whole 12, we're the holy 12, right? But us three, I mean, we're even better than the other guys. And here we are with Jesus, and, and they're feeling, it's good for us to be here, oh, 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 oh. And Peter gets a little full of Peter, as Peter often does, as David often does, as we all often do. And uh, God says two things. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And here again, we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ above all others. No one else to be worshipped. No one else to be praised. Jesus and Jesus alone. God says, Jesus is the one who pleases me. Jesus is the one who keeps my commandments. Jesus is the one who walks in my ways. Jesus is the one who pleases me. And everyone else has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone else, including Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the only one who pleases God. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't I please God? What's your answer? I got a no over here. (laughs) Don't I please God? Well, if you're in Jesus, you please God. If you're not in Jesus, you do not please God, and his wrath will be upon you. I please Jesus when I am, excuse me, I please God when I am in his Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He is the only one. And when I stand up here to give a message, if it's to say, Religious things so that I can look spiritual. He is not pleased. But if I am in him. And if I'm doing it because my, my goal is to worship this God that I love. Who's touched my life. And I want you to know him like I know him. I want you to see him like the Bible reveals him. Oh then I'm in Jesus. And he says oh I'm pleased. If you're parenting in Jesus. He's pleased. If you're going to work in Jesus he's pleased. But if you're not in Jesus he's not pleased. The world has this misconception, this misunderstanding that we're all children of God and nothing could be further from the truth. Do you know what the Bible calls us? Children of wrath. We were born in sin. And By faith in Jesus Christ, God gives us the privilege to be adopted into his family. And the scripture would say, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Uh, We're not, but we should be called that. We should be adopted into his family. We should be brought into his family. We should be positionally taken as bastard children and brought into the glorious liberty of being a child of God. Oh, how amazing. And when we are in Jesus, uh, we uh, we, we please God. Just amazing. Jesus commands them, excuse me, God commands them two things. uh, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the second thing he says is listen to him. He is the only one that you are to follow. Not Peter, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Joseph Smith, not some new religious guru who comes onto the scene, not even Moses or Elijah. Jesus alone do not worship Jesus any other, God says. And trembling on their faces, Jesus comes. And did you notice what did he do? What did he do? They're trembling on their faces. They are uh, just prostrate, down on, just trembling in fear of God. And Jesus comes and looks what, look what he says. He touches them. He touches them and says, arise, do not be afraid. Oh, I love that. Jesus is God. As he touches him, Jesus is their kinsman. Jesus is their brother. He's not in his glory, he's in his human form, and he touches them and he says, Don't be afraid. Rise up. Walk with me. Oh, how amazing. Through Jesus, we have peace with a holy God. That's an amazing thing to ponder. Through Jesus, we can have peace with the holy God. We don't have to be in fear. We don't have to tremble. Uh, we can have peace. He is our advocate before a holy God, and we are saved in Jesus Christ. Are you not thrilled by that? How glorious that all my unintentional sins that I'm not even aware of that are way more than the millions and millions of sins that I am aware of are cleansed and I can be at peace with God. I don't have to tremble because of Jesus. Can you imagine attempting to stand before a holy God on your own merit? All of your sin, intentional and unintentional, condemning you before a holy God. And you say, yeah, but I didn't know the speed limit was 55. And you just, and I'm not talking about speed limits. I'm talking about all of the things. And we're just, what a horrifying experience. But if you are in Jesus Christ, if you have made him the Lord of your life, We are saved from God's wrath on sin. And how incredible it is. Uh, We have peace with the Holy God. I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 8 for me. Romans chapter 8. It's to your right in your Bible. If you're new to the Bible. To your right from where we are right now. Romans chapter 8. And then find your way to verse 31. Romans chapter 8 verse 31. And whenever you get there, say amen. Amen. Anybody else still getting there? All right, Romans 8, 31. Here we go. What then shall we say to these things? Read this with me out loud. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he, God, not with him, Jesus, also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? A lot of people. Satan will bring a charge against God's elect. My own guilty conscience will bring a charge against God's elect. My own failures will bring a charge against me. I know I have blown it over and over and over again. I know that I'm not worthy to be a pastor or a man or a husband or anything. there's a lot of things that will bring charge against, uh, charge against me. But here's what he's saying. Who shall bring charge against God's elect? It doesn't really matter because it's God who justifies. And unless God brings a charge against you, you have no charge against you. Right? Verse 34. Who is he who condemns? Who is who, he who condemns? Who can send you to hell? Jesus. Jesus makes the decision on who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Who is he who condemns? He answers the question, it is Christ. Well, that doesn't give me any comfort until this part. It is Christ who died for your sins. And furthermore, who rose from the grave and is at the right hand of God and who is right now making intercession for us. Wow, that brings me tremendous comfort. Who is the one who'll send me to hell? Who could send me to hell? Well, he's the one who became a man for me, and denied himself every single day, emptied himself of his glory, and be, and lived a humble life on my behalf, and then went to a cross for me to take the punishment of all of my sins, and then rose from the third from the grave on the third day after all the mocking, the jeering, the piercing, the stabbing, the, all of it, and now who? sits at the right hand of God interceding for me every single moment. Then the question is asked, what can separate us from that kind of love? And what's the answer? Nothing, nothing. Nothing. Shall tribulation, distress, coronavirus, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, Satan, guilty conscience? No, none of these things can separate us, as it is written, "For your sake we are killed all the day long; we are accounted as sheep before the slaughter. We may have many accusers, many a things. You might, you, you know, you might get ill, you might be depressed, you might be whatever. We're like a sheep before a slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Wow. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Principalities or powers, that's what Satan is. He's a principality. He, there's dominions. There's, there's, we have mayors and governors and presidents. and all. Well, there is in the spiritual realm as well. It's just a copy here of what's going on in the, in, the, in the real. And there's some that are good and there's some that are wicked. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Uh, but where I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities or powers nor things present nor things to come uh, nor height nor depth nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord wow Amen. Amen. amen amen what great news what great news through Jesus we have peace with a holy God A righteous God, and even though we have a myriad of sins—of sins of omission, sins of commission, sins of uh, uh, secrets—you know, uh, sins we're unaware of and sins unintentional and intentional—we have peace with a holy God through Jesus, and it's just incredible. Notice what happens: Jesus touched them, and they were safe. Peter, James, and John. He touched them, and he says, "Don't be afraid. Arise." And now their life was different because of Jesus' touch. Oh, how life-giving Jesus' touch is. Peter never forgot this moment. It gave him incredible strength. He knew how guilty he was when he heard that voice. And then he felt the touch of Jesus that said, Peter, it's okay. I've got you. Arise. Don't be afraid. And he knew he was safe in Jesus. He knew what it meant to be saved. And Peter, we know uh, from, from scripture, we know from history, it transformed his life. It changed him. He carried this truth with him all the way to his grave. He carried this truth with him to his martyrdom. Peter was killed for his faith. How was he killed for his faith? For you Bible scholars, how was he killed? He was crucified on a cross. Upside down. Crucifixion is brutal. Right side up. Doing it upside down. You ever stand on your head for five minutes? I can't even imagine. How did he endure it? Here's how he endured it. He remembered this. It changed his life. Look what Peter said about it. It's in 2 Peter chapter 2. Excuse me. Chapter 1 verse 14. Let me hear you read this church. I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Let's stop there. What's he saying? I know I'm going to be martyred soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. When did Jesus make that clear to Peter? In John chapter 21, Jesus told him he was going to be martyred. Uh, Verse 15. And so I will make every effort to teach you God's word... So that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Look how amazing it is. And so because I know I'm going to be martyred for my faith, I'm kind of hiding out. I'm not meeting in public. I'm, uh, I'm not showing. Uh, no, 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 no. I am teaching you boldly because I know I only have a little bit of time left. Amazing. Look how transformed he is. Look at the rest of the verse. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was always teaching that Jesus was going to return, and he was going to return in power and in glory. He says, we didn't make that up. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was spoken to him by the majestic glory Saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And Peter would say, I know my death is coming, but I'm not afraid, for neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor power, nor any other thing can separate me from the love of God. I'm not worried. This is our heritage in Jesus Christ. Oh, how powerful it is, how life-giving it is to be touched by Jesus. And there they are, trembling in fear, and Jesus touches them and says, Don't be afraid. Now get up and walk with me, and let's be about the Father's business. Wow. Here's the question. Have you been touched by Jesus? Have you been touched by Jesus? Or are you like Peter, just casting out religious jargons, going to religious services, and it's not real? Have you been touched by Jesus? It gives life. Friday night, I was with a man uh, who told me, oh, Jesus got a hold of me on Christmas Eve at this church service. I was there, I was sitting, and something happened, and my life is different. I'm different now. His words were, it wasn't binary, like I wasn't saved and now I'm saved, but now I just know he got a hold of me and I'm different. Has Jesus touched you? Peter never forgot this moment. Maybe you need a fresh touch from Jesus this morning. That's what communion is all about. I'm going to ask the team to come up, the worship team and the guys to pass out the elements. Uh, We'll finish our study after we take communion, but this is the place for communion. And maybe this morning you find yourself going through the motions of religion, saying religious things, even going to church and going to the altar and those kind of things. But maybe you need a touch from Jesus. I want to remind you what scripture teaches. It's crystal clear. The Lord is not far off, that we should have to climb the heights of some mountain through our incredible feats to rise up to find him, or that we would have to swim to the depths of the deepest parts of the ocean to find him. No, the word is in you. It is in your heart. It is in your mouth. This confession that Jesus is Lord. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to call upon him in spirit and truth? Well, the opposite would be to call upon him in pretense and just vain religion. The Lord is not near to those. But the Lord is near to all who call upon him in spirit and in truth. Jesus, before he went to his crucifixion, on the night that he was betrayed and arrested, he said, with fervent desire, I've wanted to have this Passover meal with you because it's going to touch you. It's going to make a mark on me. And what I'm doing right now, you don't understand, but afterwards you will understand. You'll understand the magnitude of my love for you. And he said, I want you to take this cup and take this bread, which is my body and which is my blood shed for the remission of your sins. Paul would come along years later and tell us, Don't partake in an unworthy manner. What is an unworthy manner? if you sinned really grossly last night if you sinned really bad last week uh, then you shouldn't partake communion because you're not worthy no 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 that's the time when you need communion we're sinners we need communion with the holy God the only way we can take communion unworthily is to not really fully allow our heart to receive what Jesus did for us then we're not taking it worthily And Paul would say, if you take it this way, you're actually bringing judgment upon yourself. So as the men pass out the elements, I would encourage you to hold them. To say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Who went to a cross to pay the punishment of my sins. And Lord, more than an intellectual understanding of this, I'm asking you to be my Lord. I'm asking you to be the authority of my life. I'm asking you to cleanse me of my sin. Jesus said, this is my body. God became a man. He lived his life perfectly each and every day. My body. Sinless. Perfect. Perfect holy lamb without blemish broken for you do this in remembrance of me let's partake together and this cup this cup represents a cup of a new covenant not an old covenant of law that you couldn't keep because not the law was bad but because your flesh was weak and unable to keep it but a new covenant a better covenant not based on your faithfulness but based on my faithfulness Jesus speaking not based on your righteousness but based on my righteousness my blood perfect blood shed for the remission of your sin let's partake together And the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imparted to us all. The transfiguration of Jesus. Everybody say the word for me, transfiguration. The Greek word is metamorpho. Metamorpho. What do you think of when you hear metamorpho? Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, the transition of one body into another body. Very interesting, the Greek word metamorpho is used only four times in the scripture. Two times in the Gospels referring to what we just read today, the transfiguration of Jesus. The word transfiguration, metamorpho. There's two other times it's used, And for those two other times, it's not Jesus' transfiguration or metamorphosis. Guess whose it is? It's our own. That we would be people that have a metamorphosis. That we would be conformed into the image of Jesus. One of the verses is on 2 Corinthians. I have it on your screens for you. Read it with me if you will. We all, with open face, are beholding as an emir the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's break that down a little bit. We, with open face, open face, that means we've discovered that Jesus is the Messiah. We're not in darkness to that anymore. We understand he's our Savior. We're beholding now as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That loses translation a little bit because you have really good mirrors. Ladies, I know this about you. This morning you turned the bright lights on on the side of the mirror. And you got real close to it and you could see yourself perfectly. But in Paul's day, a mirror was a dim reflection. It was looking into a pan with water in it to kind of behold your face. It was a form of it, but hard to tell, right? And he says, we are, now that we've accepted Christ with an open face, we are beholding in a mirror, dimly in other words, like looking through a Coke bottle, the glory of the Lord, and we are, what? Changed, and the Greek word, metamorpho. We are transfigured into the same image from glory, from his glory, and it now becomes his glory into glory, his glory in us. And all of that is by the spirit of the Lord. Amazing. I said four verses, two with Jesus, two with us. There's one with us. The other one with us is in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is just your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world... But be transformed, metamorpho. But be transformed by the word of God. And those are the only four times the word is used. And God's will for you is that what you just partook of would be a touch of God that would transform your life. And you would begin to look more like him. And we are moving from glory to glory and the process is glorious itself. And this is his will for us. I want to wrap up our story here. If I get the house lights back on, we've got five more minutes and we'll wrap up in five minutes here. And the reason is, is because I don't want to hit this next week. It ties into this week's message. So come back to, uh, out of Romans, come back to Matthew and let's pick up right where we left off. I know part of us just wants to go home in the glow, right? Uh, Hang in there with me on this last section of scripture. uh, uh, About five minutes. Uh, Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell the vision to no one, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that uh, that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them indeed Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. <clears throat> we have to move quickly here, but I want you to see what's happening. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus tells them, "Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from what? From the dead." You'll remember, if you go back to chapter 16, verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he's going to die. And here again, he's telling them, he's reminding them again, hey, I'm going to die. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, they can't hear it. Even though he told them that, they can't hear it. Even though it's crystal clear to you, they can't hear it. And I know we can relate to that because we've had things we couldn't hear. Uh, if you're married, you know this is true. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't hear it. Why couldn't they hear it? Well, they just saw Jesus in all of his glory. He's God. What do you mean you're going to die? And it just goes right over their head. And so Jesus does something profound. He says... They're coming down from the mountain. Guess what they're doing as they're coming down? What's going on in their, th- in their heads? I can't wait to tell the other guys what we just saw. <laughs> and Jesus says, don't tell anyone until I've risen from the dead. Now they're going to be focusing in on his words. What? We can't tell anyone until what? Now what are they going to be thinking about? Oh, he's actually going to die. And Jesus is using this to build his disciples so they can understand, so they're at least thinking on these things, right? Um... And uh, then they ask him a question. Here's how I know they didn't even hear that he was going to die. Because they have, what's the question they ask? What about Elijah? Right? What about Elijah? What about Elijah? We talked about Elijah, right? He was the prophet called fire down from heaven. We talked about it at the beginning of the service, right? What about Elijah? Well, here's what about Elijah. There's a prophecy that says Elijah's going to appear before the Messiah comes in glory. There's a prophecy that teaches that. It's in the book of Malachi. I wish I had time to read it with you. I wanted to. It was my goal to. We just were out of time. But there's a prophecy. And they're saying, what about the prophecy in Malachi? And here's what the prophecy in Malachi says. Elijah never died. He was raptured. And the Bible says that Elijah's going to come back before Jesus comes in his glory to bring judgment on the earth. Jesus came the first time to save the earth. He comes the second time to judge the earth. Make no mistake. And we are getting ripe for the picking. And here's what Jesus answers to their question. They're expecting, hey, Jesus, I don't understand. We just saw you in all your glory. We can tell you're going to set up your kingdom. You're going to come in glory any moment now. But what about the Elijah prophecy? And here's what Jesus answers. Verse 11. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Jesus is saying the Elijah prophecy still stands. Elijah is going to come first. And in Revelation chapter 11, we're told about uh, the two witnesses that come during the tribulation period. Uh, I know that's going to be over a lot of people's heads. I'm sorry, we're out of time. Uh, But uh, he'll be one of those two witnesses, and he will uh, prepare the way of the Lord's return, right? Um, here's what Jesus says. Indeed, Elijah will come first. And look at these words. What will he do? Restore all things? What do you mean restore all things? Can Elijah restore all things? No, only the Messiah can do that. What does that mean? It means that he will restore Israel, who is blind to Jesus right now. He will restore them and bring them back and be, make them ready for the Messiah's coming just like John the Baptist did for his first coming, right? John the Baptist made people ready for Jesus uh, Elijah will do that, he'll be one of the two witnesses and he will bring, Oh, he'll open Israel's eyes and they will see their Messiah uh, before he comes back um, uh, you can read the last chapter in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi if you want more uh, on this uh, verse 12, but I say to you that Elijah has already come And they did not know him, but did to him whatsoever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer into their hands. And the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had already been killed. He was killed by Herod, by Herodias, Herod's wife. He was beheaded. And Jesus is telling them once again, guys, I'm going to die. They John the Baptist already came, excuse me, uh, Elijah already came in the person of John the Baptist and they killed him and they're going to kill me too. Uh, so two things. One, Jesus says, Elijah is coming first before I return. And then he says, Elijah already came and he's in the person of John the Baptist. And, and here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is preventing the argument that Jesus' messiahship had to be rejected by the jews because elijah hadn't first come and he's saying no 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 elijah did first come in the person of john the baptist he came with the same message and the same everything as as elijah had and uh and uh, in, in chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus taught the same thing. He said, if you were willing to receive me as the king, then he was Elijah. But you're not willing to receive me as the king, so Elijah must still first come. And so the prophecy of Elijah still stands. And I know for most of us that's over our heads, but there's some of you who are Bible scholars and you're able to chew on that. Uh, all that to say, uh, uh, the disciples... They really could not grasp any of this right here. And you might be in that spot too. And here's why they couldn't grasp it. They thought they couldn't grasp Jesus' death. Why? Because they couldn't grasp that God loved them that much. That Jesus' ministry, that Jesus' mission was to go to the cross. And so when they heard these things, it was too much for them. It was beyond their comprehension But this is the depth of God's love for them. They're just not able to fully understand it. Behold, as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. But God has revealed these things to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Uh, May the Lord give us understanding. Shall we stand? God bless you as you get plugged into mission groups this week. God bless you as you go out with no fear, knowing that you have been touched by the Lord. Arise, you are uh, loved by your creator. His hand is upon you, and he wants to use you to bring his light into a dark world. And may I say, the world needs it. So shine brightly. Amen? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.